Welcome to the Be More Soccer Connection. This week we have Joe Meatball Manfrey. Joe is one of the fiercest goalkeepers in Baltimore, competing at Patterson High School and University of Baltimore. After graduation, Joe decided to get into refereeing, and this is where the story really begins. Joe became one of the most sought-after referees in the country. He refereed the women's U.S. national team multiple times, 10 collegiate national championships, countless college games, and of course, our Baltimore Blast. With 47 years of refereeing at all levels, Joe shares a perspective on the game unlike any I have ever heard before. Enjoy. Welcome, Joe Meatball Manfrey, to the podcast. Thank you, Allie. It's good to have you here, Joe. Um, we'll just jump right in talking about soccer back in Highland Town growing up. Tell us how you got into it. All right. I started as a 10-year-old playing soccer. I didn't even know what soccer was all about to a friend of mine named Louis DeBasquale said, come out and try out for the soccer team. So we went out and we played uh, CYO soccer for Lady of Pompeii. And we did pretty good. We won a, quite a few championships all up through, you know, CYO years. And then into high school, we, we played together with uh, Patterson. And uh, when I was a junior and senior, we were 15-0 and 0 junior year and 15-0 and 0 in our senior year. So we did very well. It was very interesting. So what was it like? Um, did you play goalkeeper right from the start? I was a goalkeeper junior and senior year. So when you were 10, you were on the field. Yeah, when, I, when I was 10, I was a goalkeeper. But when I got to oh. high school, I was had to play JV. You weren't allowed to play varsity at that time. So, or maybe maybe I wasn't good enough. I don't know. But I played half back then on JV team. So, backtracking a little bit to when you were younger, what was it like? Uh, what was the soccer scene like in downtown Baltimore? Downtown Baltimore was Holland Town. Man, we played in Holland Town. We played at the school lot down there on uh, Claremont, and we just had a ball. We just played sports all the time we you know played till six o'clock when the church bells rang we had to run to dinner we had to be home for dinner and uh you know our road trips were geez we went from east baltimore south baltimore i guess that was our biggest road trip you know it wasn't the trips that these kids now make when they go to florida or, or europe and have play soccer at 10 and 12 years old it's unbelievable our road trips were just out of patterson park and down to st bridget's and play down here or out of patterson park and go to the true park and play South Baltimore. That that was our road trips back then. Until we got a little bit older, and when we got 16, 18, we started to travel a little bit more. We went maybe went to D.C. or Jersey or New York and played because we had some fairly good teams. And then we played with Elman Walters and St. Gerard's and Bud's Travelers and teams like that. And we had a very nice group of guys that played. You know, I can go on and name many of them. They were all great players and turned out to be great gentlemen. So when you were younger um, and you would go down and play at the school lot with your, your buddies, mm -hmm. did, were there any adults around or what, were, oh, what yeah. was the adult influence like? Oh, yeah. The, the adults were there. They, it was Larry Chirac, a good name out of, out of the past. Was a, he used to hit the ball a ton. Bobby Sawinski was down there. And the Carantas, Tommy Caranta, and now the, a whole bunch of little Carantas were little at the time. But uh, Mr. Tom ran some teams and – George Barry's teams were very good, and we used to knock heads quite a bit, you know, on different teams. But uh, playing in a school lot was a, you know, big thrill for us back then. I mean, that was their biggest place, and it was only a little dirt field with some grass on it every now and then. And it was just a neighborhood rivalry. 
And did those guys, um, did they teach you anything? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. As I became a goalie, they, they taught me how to cut the angle off on a ball and how to stop balls and how to distribute to the wings and how to throw the ball. I, when I played, I always threw the ball because I had a fairly good arm. When I played baseball, I was a fairly good baseball player. But uh, I threw the ball a lot as a goalkeeper. You know, I would run out and try to start the attack and uh, get, get the team going in transition, try to score. So several people taught us how to play that game back then. I mean, Larry Chirac was an excellent player. And he, he taught us some good stuff when we were kids. So you must have been a pretty popular guy, the goalkeeper. Everybody wants to shoot on you. Yeah, but I'm the last defender. And when he went past me, it was uh, kind of embarrassing to get scored on. But it was it was fun. I mean, I had great defenders in front of me all through high school. And we, we, played, we played the game the way it was played back then. And it was just a lot of fun. The defense was always really outstanding. I think our senior year, we only allowed one goal. One, we were, had 14 shutouts or something like that in the senior year at high school because it was all cost of the defense. And I, I had to yell at them, tell them where to go and how to defend, but they played well in front of me, so that helped me quite a bit. So how, how were your coaches? You, had, you said you went to Pompeii. And Pompeii. who coached you there, and then who coached you at Patterson? Well, a guy named Joe Monzo coached. Uh, rest of his soul was a coach back then, and we used to go to church in the mornings and go to church and then go out and play in the afternoon so we, we met at the church played the lady of Pompeii and then we went to St. Bridget's and we went to St. Elizabeth's and we went to good council and places like that but technically we were you know the church was sponsoring us back then so it was Joe Monzo back then and then we went to Patterson it was uh, Joe Tamins was our coach and then uh, Dan Terzi was our coach and then from here I went to college University of Baltimore okay so Patterson, uh, we were talking before we started about there's a, a Patterson team that's being honored this year at the Old Times Association. Correct. Um, and and But you also had a really good team at Patterson. Yes, we did. So can you tell me about that season, that, those that, two seasons? Those two seasons, we were like I say, we were 15-0, and 0 and uh, we beat City in both championship games back then. Uh, beat them 2 to nothing and 2 to nothing, if I recall correctly. Uh, we shut them out. City was uh, one of the top schools in the other division, I guess. And uh, we won our division twice and beat City twice in the championship. And the teams were just, they were very good, the players we played with. I mean, you can name a bunch of them, but I won't leave anybody out. So they were all good players, you know, like the Diva Squallies in front of us, and they were just good players. Was there anyone specific that you can remember as a goalkeeper that made you feel a little better? <laughs> A little oh, yeah. bit more comfortable. Oh yes, yeah. we as I got older, you know, I had you know Denny Wilbert and Tommy Wall back there playing for St. Gerard's, and you know, if I made a mistake, one of them two cleaned it up. I mean, Tommy Wall probably saved more goals than I did as a goalkeeper <laughs> by being a fullback and heading balls out. But uh, the players back then, they they hustled back and they played defense, and then they went forward. We we tried to score as many goals as we could. And I remember one year the coach. We were up, I think it was St. Paul's. We were beating them like 10 to nothing. The coach refused to let us score again. And back then we played quarters. And we were up 10 to nothing. The coach says, any of you score again, I'm taking you out. You ain't going to play anymore. So, he, you know, we try to be sportsmen about it. But these guys were hungry, you know. We had Fritz Scardini and Paul Scardini and guys like that, Johnny Hennigan. They just wanted to put the ball in the back of the net. Frenchy, Walter Corlaco. Frenchy was a very good player. And, you know, I can go on and on and name a bunch of guys, but uh, we all stuck in there and played well. 
So then you go to University of Baltimore. Yeah. And um, one of the questions that I'm curious about, I've asked a couple of the, the people who've been on the podcast already, was, you know, what was that like transitioning from, um, you know, kind of like the backyard soccer, Baltimore style, everybody meet down at the school, lots to play, to then college soccer is a little bit different. I mean, even just the practice organization and the expectations so what was that transition like for you and and the pressure as a goalkeeper is different now yeah so can you tell us a little bit about that yeah well you know we we would go to south baltimore and play the south baltimore boys and we knock heads with them you know as we were 16 18 something like that 14 16 play against them and then we went to college they were teammates so we used to knock heads when we were younger and go against one another and then they became teammates and we played at university of baltimore together click right away yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. You know, you said, geez, Henry Kazmierski and Buzzy Gerlacki, the Magic Brothers. It was Henchy Nichols, Timmy Nichols. It, we just blended because we were all on the same team. We all came together and played well, and, and we played as a team for each other. We, you know, it wasn't any stars, individual stars. And, and I was the goalkeeper. I was the last line of defense. And we managed to win the Mason-Dixon Championship in 68. So... We did some things right. We lost the national finals 2-1, to one, unfortunately, but we did well and beat Roanoke 2-0 and won the Mason-Dixon Championship with a mixture of Baltimore, East Baltimore, and South Baltimore. Boys blended together. Holland Town and South Baltimore blended together. So and were able what to was that like with the, with the older generation ahead of you guys knowing that like a bunch of Baltimore guys are at Baltimore and doing awesome? What was the support like around oh, the team? We, we got we got support from the neighborhood. The neighborhood used to come out, sit up on a wall, and cheer us on. And and the real rivalry was Loyola and, and U of B back then. I mean, we we knocked heads with them quite a bit at Loyola, and uh, it was it was uh, funny that we got into the championship because Loyola tied Western Maryland. If they hadn't tied Western, if they had beat Western Maryland, we wouldn't have got into the championship. We beat them by a point or whatever it was, whatever the standings were. But the Loyola guys were a little bit upset, but they had a great team too. As you know, they went on to win a national championship, and so did the UOB guys in 75, I think it was. They won a national championship. And I think 76 or 74, Loyola won a national championship. So back then, you know, that was kind of unheard of for one of those two teams to win a national championship. And it was all grassroots people, you know, from Baltimore. Baltimore kids did well. And uh, by then I was refereeing, but I remember refereeing Loyola in Baltimore when they were doing well. And he won national championships, so that was pretty good for the Baltimore scene. What did you think about at the time? I mean, if you look at Baltimore soccer now, not all the good players are coming right out of Highland Town. I mean, that was a special time of a hotbed of soccer. So, so what do you think about like how did that happen? How did all these great players come out of such a concentrated area? Well, it was it was a little area where I think what happened over time, the the players in that area grew up and moved out to the outside outskirts of the area raised their kids, and they had a good soccer background. So, you know, you got you got some people that left out of Holland Town and moved to the county or wherever, and they brought their kids out to the county and played. So county teams got real good. Now you look at this, uh, what is it, Christo's team won two national championships. That, that was unheard of back then. You couldn't win two national championships back-to-back. And this Christo's team won the uh, Amateur Cup and the Open Cup, I think, this year, and they're playing again for another championship. So those kids, wherever they came from now, are probably from all outside of them, way outside of Holland Town, I'm sure. But back then, it was the hotbed of soccer. It was Holland Town against South Baltimore or Holland Town against, you know, whatever. Where, that, where does that come from? I just think the people grew. And, you know, like, like now I'm refereeing my 46th year, and I'm refereeing 
kids that I play with grandchildren. That's kind of crazy after this time, long this time, but that had to come from the where their roots were in Holland Town or in East Baltimore or South Baltimore. But where did that even come from? Like the original soccer the, hotbed. The original soccer hotbed was in Baltimore. I mean, you, you had people like Larry Chirac, I'm saying, you know, back in the 40s and 30s, I guess 40s, they were just very good players and they passed it down. They passed it down to the younger generation and each generation passed their soccer skills down to younger people. And it grew. And it, the soccer just grown leaps and bounds. It's unbelievable how much soccer is being played now. Unbelievable. We can't get enough referees out there to referee. And I'm, the, and I'm the commissioner of college soccer now, and we're still looking for referees on the you know, youth level and the high school level. We, we need referees really bad. But I guess over a period of time, it, it grows. And, you know, people mentor. That's how we do it in refereeing. We mentor people to bring them along, make them become better referees. Seeing what happened with the young kids back then, I'm sure someone taught them how to play the game and taught them how to play the game right. Like your dad. Your dad, you know, Dave Andrzejewski, the Jutes, I remember him playing. I refereed him many a time. And they just passed it down to their kids. And like you, <laughs> you learn from someone, that's My dad for sure. Was a keeper. Yeah, there you go. And he still is, I understand. Yeah, he's, he played goalkeeper tonight. You wrapped <laughs> our game. <laughs> he, he played goal, and he shot him out too. So good for Gary. Good for Gary. Um, so, but UB wasn't the end for you of your playing career. You played professionally for. The, the Maryland Bays. Baltimore, well, Baltimore. well, I played one year professionally, uh, 1969. It was the Baltimore Bays. And uh, it was my first really good experience with professional soccer. And, again, we had some good Baltimore kids playing there. Uh, you know, Danny Wilbur played, Hennigan played. I uh, can't remember all the guys on the team, but we had some very – Badu. Badu was one of the guys. Jeez, I'm really making me go back now, Elliot's 1969. And yeah, it was my first professional experience. Took my first plane ride to Dallas to play in a game. Uh, unfortunately, I never played. I rode the bench a little bit, but I was a goalkeeper. And I had another good, good goalkeeper playing ahead of me. So the experience was great. I mean, you got to travel, you know, but five was, or six cities. It was different back then. I oh, mean, yeah. The, oh, yeah. It's not, nothing like it is now. The landscape of soccer for, for professional players back then, I mean, I think it was kind of special. And for you, you, you mentioned earlier, there was foreign players coming in. Yes. Right? And, and they're the ones who are kind of making it tough for you to get on the field, right? Correct. The foreign players were, were I guess, more of demand because they had the skill and knowledge of the game from overseas, and they come up against the local kids. And, you know, we did our best, and uh, we learned from them, obviously. We learned from their skill set. What did you learn? What some things we, that you learned from we, those guys. I was a goalkeeper, so I didn't learn a whole lot. I, I know how to protect myself playing goal, and uh, you know they would they would they were good players. I mean, Addie Coker was one of the guys. I, I can Badu and just there's a whole bunch of good players. The Welsh brothers, Asher and Art Welsh. I'm going back a few years, but uh, they were very skilled players. So they knew how to keep the ball at their feet. You know, and it wasn't none of this long kick it 30 yards up the field and chase it. They worked and passed the ball all the way up. More like, uh, you know, one of the best teams ever referee was Santos or Brazil. They were just unbelievable. And the professional players from foreign countries were very skilled. Did you referee Santos when they played against the yes. base? I refereed Santos in El Salvador in RFK Stadium in front of about 40,000 people. Wow. It was Santos for Brazil, I, I think, was the I, I think was the best uh, team I ever had the pleasure of refereeing. They were outstanding. 
I am I am super excited to dive into your refereeing, but I want to ask you one more question about your playing career. Go ahead. Which was um. Can you can you talk about how maybe your mentality changed from a ten year old kid goalkeeper through high school, college, into professional? Because I think goalkeeper is one of the most mentally difficult positions on the field. I mean, you and if you're going to end up playing goalkeeper at a high level, you have got to be really tough, um, tough as nails. So can you can you tell me about how kind of you developed into yeah. a, a really good goalkeeper and then the the mental side of the game for you yep and well when I first started I was a goalkeeper and all I remember Louie doing say don't let the ball go in the goal you know so I did everything I could not to let the ball go in the goal and and then as we got more so into high school I had some better players in front of me so I learned how to direct them to defend you know take pick up the wing go up to the side and I yelled at them and told them where to go and that sort of helped me keep the ball out of the net or kept that basketball out of the net and as my skill set developed, you know, you started learning how to cut the angle down, how to pursue a ball when it's in the air, how to go out and punch it, because if you couldn't catch it, you had to punch it out back then. And uh, if you had an opportunity, you never gave them a second chance to score. You know, you always, as it developed into the pros, you had to catch the ball and not let it come. If anybody shot it, you wanted to catch it and keep it, not just deflect it so somebody else can get a rebound shot. So I learned that as a pro to learn how to keep the ball and not, not give them another second shot. If they took one shot, that's okay, and you saved it, that's great. But then we had to distribute and get the ball up the field to the attacking team so they could go. So I learned just by, you know, experience and playing more and more every time I did in practice. You know, we used to practice in a bowl in Ortman Field and down there in high school and college. That's where we practiced a lot. And, we, you know, I have people coming at me one-on-one. They would dribble, and I'd try to take the ball away from them. Probably got more concussions than I could think of, but concussions <laughs> have changed since then. And uh, I probably didn't even know I had a concussion, but anyhow, it's, it's one of them dangers of the job. You get kicked in the head a few times. Is that the get... worst that happened to you? Yeah, well, yeah, I had a, probably had a couple, but I don't, you know, I guess I guess can't remember concussions yet. <laughs> and the worst injury I had was at Loyola. I went up to punch a ball at, and some guy cut undercut me, and I came down on my head. And then, and I, I thought it felt like I broke my neck, but I, I was fortunate I just broke my nose. So I must have come down ran. And the only injury I ever had was a dumb play like that. I went up to punch a ball out, and somebody undercut me. I guess the referee called a foul. I don't know. If he didn't, I'm going to shoot him. <laughs> but that was a long time ago. That's pretty wild for a keeper. Yeah. No broken bones. Yeah, it was. I was pretty lucky, I guess. But again, I had good defense in front of me, so it wasn't too much for me. He called on to save, make saves. You know. When money came up and I had to make a save, I guess I did it. I, I don't know. It was fun. I just, uh, I just like playing. And now, like a refereeing, I just like refereeing. It's fun. What was Being your mentality as a goalkeeper back then? I mean, were you like, <clears throat> really hardcore or laid back, or how no, did you approach I, the game? I just knew I was the last line of defense, and if I got scored on, I was upset because I let the team down. You know, if I got scored on, I, I did something wrong. You know. I, two of the biggest ones when we lost two to one in the uh, in national final up here in uh, I guess it was uh, Rhode Island we went to I can't remember but anyhow I felt like I let the team down you know I got scored on twice that was jeez I never liked that at all so uh, you know get one one gets by me and I'm upset if two get by me I'm really upset so my mentality was stay focused stay in the game don't let them score 
As a goalkeeper, that was my job. And if I let the team down, I possibly let the team down. Didn't happen very often. How did you rebound from that? I just put it past me and move on. Move on to the next game. You know, you, you know, we lost two to one national final. Then we had to come back and play for the championship. And you know, Mason Dixon. Back then it was called Mason Dixon. I don't know what they call it now. Everybody's got a different conference now, so it's pretty difficult. Keeps changing. It's always changing. Soccer's always changing. So when you finished playing with the Baltimore Bays, um, you took a different path, as you've mentioned already, than some other players have taken some some players get into coaching side of things but you got into the refereeing side of things which is really really interesting to me um because referees have have their work cut out for them uh, especially with the feisty players so what made you want to do that to begin with what was your when i was playing and you know Getting out there playing, I was watching the people referee, and it just seems like every now and then a fight would break out. I mean, it was East Baltimore and South Baltimore, and, and the battles would start. So, you know, I guess I watched enough soccer and, and played enough soccer to realize, you know, maybe I could do a little bit better than these referees are doing back then. Not that all of them were bad referees, and some of the players made the problems for the referees. Us, we had some bullheaded players, and they would just get out there and Something would set them off and a fight would break out and then, geez, we would have mayhem. And I just thought I could do a better job refereeing than the people that were refereeing the game back then. And so I got involved in refereeing in 1971 and 46 years later, I'm still refereeing. So it, it's been a blast. I I wouldn't trade what I did for anything. I, I know coaching is a good thing to coach kids and get them out there. But I sort of coach referees now instead of kids. So I try to train referees to become better referees or mentor. That's our mentor problem. So when you started off, I, I refed um, myself. I refed one game. It was you, maybe you eight or you ten kids. And the parents were so um, animated on the sideline that I was overwhelmed. <laughs> so I can't even imagine, um, um, after that, that was my first and my last. <laughs> <laughs> you ended your career so, quick. That huh? was my, my, the end of my refereeing career. <laughs> so, it's so similar. how was it when you very, I mean, the very beginning of refereeing? Cause but, I mean, you're confident as a player, but as a referee, did you have the same confidence? Or did oh you no. Have to kind of oh no. No, no, no. I didn't have the confidence at all. I had to go out there and, and got thrown into the fire. My very first game, I still remember it, was a U8 game, just like you had. <laughs> and I'm at Herring Run Park, and we're running around, and I'm refereeing, and you know, I'm learning the ins and outs of refereeing. It was, back then, it was one man. You ran all over the field and did the best job you could do. But when the game, <laughs> I'll never forget this, the game ended. I blew the whistle, and the game time was up, and, and one team got beat five or six to nothing, and a little kid, eight years old, come over and started pulling at my shorts. And I looked in and I says, what's wrong, son? And he says, what's going on, ref? I says, well, the game's over. He said, oh, no kidding. Who won? He had no clue who won. He had no clue what he was doing. He was just running around there and having a ball. And he wanted the game to continue. He didn't want He just wanted to keep running. So that's one of my first – that was the first game I ever refereed. So I always go back to that and think, geez, this kid's just having a blast. He's having fun. Let him, let him have fun. But from there, I went all the way to the top, rode it to the top, traveled all over the country. How did you get there? I mean, you're starting off at U8. 
Yeah. Right? So what, tell yep. us a little bit more about your journey. Well, started with U8s and U10s, and you know, since I had played, the referees at that time figured, boy, this guy can move up. So before before long, it was it only took me a year or two. I was doing unlimited soccer, and I was traveling in Baltimore, going everywhere, doing games, and I guess I did fairly well. Those uh, guys knew what the score was, though. Yeah, they, they knew what the score was. Nick Kropfelter was a great referee, and he, he used to mentor me. And, you know, I got to go back with Richie All, Louis Hess, and, you know, I can go on and on and name some referees. That we all helped one another out. We, you know, we would go referee a game in Patterson Park or South Baltimore or wherever, and we'd go back to Lou Hess's restaurant and talk about the game and what we did right, what we did wrong. I mean, we were pretty critical of one another. You should do this, you should do that. So back then we we started that, and the mentoring program helps out quite a bit. And we just hey you should have done this or hey you should have did that. You know this guy was possibly also, and we talked about it. And we go back to the the restaurant and bar and talk about it. And we we review back then we review whatever we could review. Back now now they got tapes of games and CDs of games and you watch them. You feel like you were almost harder on yourself as a referee than a player. Because you have probably so. Kind of yeah, the probably so. Because then you you do inter you know you do have an influence on a game, and you don't want to make a mistake. And you know I could I can probably come up with some of the mistakes I've made that were were just typical mistakes. You know, I mean, just and you do you make a mistake, you never want to repeat that mistake. So do you your mindset one specifically. Yeah, I remember two or three specifically, but I'll tell you about them. <laughs> I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, doing an indoor game with Gino DiPolito, who was a great, great indoor referee. And uh, this is how you learn. Um, at the time, we were doing a Chicago Sting in the Cleveland Crunch. Now, this is, you know, probably in the 80s, you know, 71 to 80s. By then, I've been refereeing 10 or 15 years. So I'm doing indoor. And uh, the rule back then was if you put two guys in the penalty box, there's no three-line violation which is you kick the ball over three lines and indoor, it's a violation. But back then, if you put two in a box, there's no three-line violation. So Gina puts a guy in a box for Cleveland, and boy, 30 seconds later, I put a guy in a box. So we got two guys in a box. And right away, it ticks on me, okay, that's two guys in a box, there's no three-line. So I said to my AR, and I said to Gino, I said, Gino, two guys in a box, no three-line, get this right. And I told my AR, no three-line, you got two guys in a box, bing, bang, boom, we start playback up. The ball leaves Gino's end and goes over my end, and who blows the whistle for a three-line? Me. And I felt like about this big crawling to the ground. I made a mistake, and I even told myself, no three-line, it's three, you know, two guys in a box. But you make a mistake. You learn from it. So I blew the whistle, and I put my head down. As soon as I blew the whistle, I said, oh, no, it's no three-line. There's two guys in a box. That fast I forgot. Gino, the professional he is, he puts the ball down on the, on the red line on the other side, and boom, we're off and playing. And he did it so well, like, I never caught heck from anybody. They just said, okay, he made a mistake, let's play. So that's a mistake, and you, I never made that mistake again. So and that's one. You know, you're going to make mistakes, but you don't want to do it where it's going to cost anybody a game. That's for darn sure. How did you handle, I mean, especially you're, you're refing the, when you're refing the Baltimore games, I mean, the rivalries are, can, they can be pretty intense. And then you're talking about refereeing some of the, you know, RFK Stadium with 40,000 people. So how do you handle when the game's getting really, really intense between players and they're getting a little out of hand? And 
you got to man manage the situation. You run over and say, hey, you know, I, you know, watch it. I saw that, or I, you know, I gave the vantage one. I leave it alone. Do you Don't have a go policy? back. Oh or yeah, you all. How much you're willing to tolerate? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, you, you can tell when players are getting out of hand and they're going to whack somebody and they're going to whack them on purpose, or you know, you, you got to read that. Being a player, that really helped me become a better referee because I knew what it was to be whacked and hacked, and and you got to protect the skilled players. You know, you're out there playing with some really skilled players, and you knew who they were in time. You knew you got the experience of who the skilled players were, and you got the experience who the thugs were. So you had to watch out for the thugs against the skilled players. So that's a, and you learn from your experience. You go out there if you practice and practice and practice. It refereeing is the same way. You more games you can referee, the better off you'll be. And like you're saying, I alluded to the game in Brazil, Santos of Brazil, and El Salvador, and I learned a lesson there. I'm doing Santos of Brazil with two local guys in the area. I forgot who my arrows were. And uh, Brazil goes up like three nothing. So it was two to nothing. I give a guy a yellow card from Brazil. And um, prior to that, the referee who did the game the week before me got attacked at the game. And by going, the players? By the players, yeah, in, in RFK Stadium. And so they asked, they asked me to go do the game. I said, all right, I'll go do the game, but you better have security there. So anyhow, we, we get into the game, and, and the security's there, and your tensions are high, and you, you look into the stands, and people are fighting in the stands. I mean, it was crazy. So at that time, you had a point where the ball went out of bounds, out of touch. You had a point. So I'm sitting there pointing, and I'm looking behind where the guy's going to throw the ball, and then people are fighting in the stands, and the guards are running up and down. It was crazy. So anyhow, I got a little bit of a fear in you because I knew the, the referee before me got attacked. So anyhow, the game's going on, and I and – I, uh, Brazil goes up two to nothing. Give a guy a yellow card from Brazil, and then it gets to be three nothing. And I'm going, boy, these Venezuelan players ain't going to be happy. It was an all-star team playing Santos for Brazil. Which fans were crazier? Everybody. Oh, <laughs> RFK Stadium was <laughs> was rocking back then, and I just remember being, wow, this is like my first or second international match, and this is this is something. So anyhow, I give the guy. Uh, another card, right? So he reaches up and punches the bar or something. So I'll pull another yellow card, and I turn around, and it's the same guy I gave a previous yellow card to. I can remember his number, number 10. And I said, oh, boy, this kid's going to kill me. So I pull that, put my yellow card. He, he deserved, deserved it. He deserved both cards. So he deserves both cards. So I pull out the yellow, then I pull out the red and say, okay, you're out of this game. And I says, oh, this guy's going to come and attack me. But no, he looked at me, nodded, and he ran off the field, and I went, Holy smoke, I thought this kid was going to come after me, but he didn't. So I'm saying, what happened there? I, it didn't dawn on me what happened. So later on, I'm refereeing, and, and I'm doing an indoor game in, in Dallas or Houston. We're flying, and Gino's with me. And when you, we fly with partners, we go to a town, and we talk about the game and who's playing and blah, blah, blah. And we, we do our homework and investigate the teams and how they're doing in standings and all that stuff. And then we go into other conversations about experience. So I told Gino about this incident, and I said, I threw this number 10 out from Santos of Brazil, and I thought the guy was going to kill me. And he said, what happened? And I said, he just nodded, and he ran off the field. I said, it was the strangest red card I've ever given him in my life. And he says, oh, you're a dumb rookie. He said, the kid didn't want to play. The coach made him play, and you threw him out. So he said, thank you, and he went off the field. It never occurred to me that's what happened. But obviously, that's what happened. But he got himself injected. On he got purpose? himself injected on purpose because he didn't want to play anymore. They were up three to nothing. That's something. That's crazy. To be playing for Santos, Santos. representing them in America. 
and it's, intentionally go out of the game. It's exactly what he did because he didn't want to hurt anybody. He just didn't want to play anymore. So he handed the ball purposely. I gave him a yellow card. It was his second. He left. He just said thank you and he walked off the field. I was surprised. It didn't dawn on me what happened until Gina told me. Well, how did the fans feel about it? Well, the fans, were, they were crazy anyhow. All they did is yelled and screamed, you know. But the game ended 3 to nothing. I'll never forget that. It was, it was an it, experience. Was it at least not in English? Well, whatever he said, he didn't, you know, he just nodded and walked off the field. I mean, I don't know what he could have said. I, the, the El Salvadorian players could have spoke any kind of language. But the language of refereeing in the game was the key thing. So we did okay. It ended 3 to nothing or 3 to 1, and we finished the game, and I was happy. But that experience from not knowing what that player had done really made me wake up and think about it. So I guess players do that on the, in a professional level. I don't know. But it was the first time it happened to me, so I'll never forget that one. It's have, a lesson learned, put it that way. Do you have any other memorable stories like that? Oh, geez. So yeah. many. Yeah, you know, I did ref, I refereed professional indoor for 25 years, traveled all over the world, well, all over the country, not the world. So I'm in, I'm in Buffalo and working a game with Herb Silva, who's another, he's a USSF instructor. And when you get to work with these guys, you get to learn quite a bit because they're very experienced in the indoor game. You know, I work with Essie Bahamas and Brian Hall and, and really good referees, Paul Tamburino. And you learn from people. You know, that's how the referees learn. So I, we're doing a game in Buffalo, and, you know, I, I boom, put a guy in a penalty box because the foul happens right in front of me. And I'm running across to report the penalty to the guy and put the guy in a penalty box. And my partner, Herb Silva, walks past me going the other way. And he says, Joe, give me a yellow card, too. And I says, okay, why am I doing it? And anyhow, back then you could give a blue card and a yellow card. So I give the blue card, get to the box and do it professionally and give him a yellow card. What's the blue card for? Blue card puts the guy in the box for two minutes for the foul he committed. And okay. the yellow card is a warning, another blue card you might get thrown out of the game. It's the same sort of deal. But if he don't tell me that, I don't give the yellow card. I just give the blue. Because in indoor, things happen so quick right in front of you there's a foul, but it might look worse from your partner's view. He's 65 feet or 35 feet away, and he just passes on the information to you. And you, you take it in transition as you go by. And maybe that was the right thing to give him a yellow card and not just a blue because the foul might have looked bad from his view than mine, you know. So you learn from that. You just learn from the experienced guys at work, and you, and you move on. So that's another crazy story. But. So... You escaped unscathed I escaped from the Santos uns game. Yes. But is there a game that you didn't? <laughs> I think about that many, many times, and I'm saying, boy, did I ever get myself in a pickle where I probably could have been killed and you know, or, or, or shot or, or attacked? And there was one. And there was one back in a, in a heyday when I just started about three or four years into a game. Uh it was, I forgot who the teams were, but it was like a Pompeii, uh, Casabianca rivalry against uh, somebody, St. Gerard or something like that. And by me hustling, I called the ball that just got over the goal line, a goal. You know, and, I, and it was a goal. The ball just gets over the goal line. I'm singling gold, and Nick Crawfelter was my partner. He's at the other end, so he don't know. And, I mean, I signaled gold, and the Casabianca people went off. I think Tommy Caranta wanted to kill me probably. Because he was coaching the team, he come running down, and uh, I'm saying, "Oh boy, this is going to be not a good experience." But fortunately, some cooler heads prevailed, and I, I can remember Vinci Johnson to this day was a, was a 
I guess, assistant coach with, with the Casabianca team. And he stopped Mr. Tom from running on the field and grabbed him and bear hugged him and pulled him back. And But at that time, I thought I was going to be attacked, but it never happened. So that's the closest. That was the that closest. That anyone got to put their hands on you. Nobody's ever put their hands on me. Thank God. So you've made, you had an entire career refereeing and an entire career playing soccer as a goalkeeper where you didn't have any major injury as a goalkeeper and you've never been attacked as a referee. So you're basically Correct. the luckiest guy on earth. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much. It, it probably is a good thing. I, and, you know, when you, do, when you do indoor, you know, you're right close and up close personal with those guys. I mean, indoor, indoor I, w- I would have loved to continue doing indoor. I just got tired of flying everywhere. I would have stayed and done the indoor game for years. But I did it for 25 years. And you would think, boy, I'm going to get head-butted or I'm going to get hit. Or I did get hit one time in Dallas. Doc Lawson turned around and wheeled a kick, and I just happened to be in his running in his path, and then he hit me right in the chest. And I thought, <clears throat> lose my breath, voice. That's the other only injury I ever got. And uh, But the indoor game is so quick and so fast. It's so much fun. I love doing indoor soccer. But, yeah, you, you can say I was pretty daggone lucky. How did you feel going from playing to refereeing, and, and did you miss the actual playing of the game? I mean, getting your foot, getting, I guess not your foot, your hands on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my hands on the ball was more correct. You know, I didn't. I, I thought I would, but once I got into refereeing, I guess I was still in the game. I was still refereeing, still playing, sort of playing the game, but playing it in a different version, playing it as a referee instead of a player. So I really didn't miss the game playing. It, it, was, it was just a nice transition for me. It worked well. And I continued to stay in the game and continue seeing a whole lot of friends over the years, a whole lot of people, a whole lot of kids that I play with or green kids that are playing that I refereed their parents. And, you know, it was fun. It's just refereeing soccer is a lot of fun. And unfortunately, I've been very lucky, I guess to say. They say I did 10 national finals. How, how lucky can you be? I mean, I, I got chosen to do some very tough games. I did five. How do, what's the selection process like for that? How do you get chosen to, to rep a game like that? The NCAA chooses people. Or somebody has some feedback on the upper level. The coaches may be involved in the, in the tournament play. I know, you know, tournament play, you always have a tournament director or somebody. And Pete Karinji did it one year, and I, and he, I guess he – selected me to do do a, a semifinal or a conference final. It's people you know help help you, I guess, through the through the refereeing corps. But it, mostly when you do the NCAA, it's it's college coaches. And through through experience that you have doing their games, you know, maybe the guy might have lost two to one in a game I did between Rhode Island and Vermont. I don't know. But who's ever on a selection committee might have liked the performance I did and said, let's choose him. So I was fortunate. I got to do five NCAA, five years in a row, went to the NCAA Division I men's finals. Wow. And, and they were great. One of the best ones was at uh, American University in, and uh, Hartwick. And I did the game at AU. It was a semifinal. It was supposed to be in Hartwick. This is how lucky I am. So, okay, I'm going to go to Hartwick to do Hartwick and, and AU in the semifinal, Division I men's. And it snowed so bad that Hartwick got – just inundated with feet, two, three feet of snow, and they moved the game to American. He said, you still want to go to American? I said, oh, yeah, that's only 40 miles away from my home. So I go to American, do it, and it was just a great game, 1985, 86, something like that. 
and I met some great people. I had a guy named Jay Hall and Jack White were my ARs, and this was just an outstanding college soccer game. AU wins 2-1, to one, and the place probably was packed. People were hanging out of dorms, sitting up in trees, and it was just a great, great college soccer game. So that was my first Division One semifinal. And from here, I went to Clemson, then Indiana, then Rutgers for two years, and so you were, did five. Did, you did a lot of traveling as a yes. referee. Yes. I was very lucky. Very lucky. I mean, I, I did a lot of traveling. I mean, you had to if you wanted to do the, do the games, you know. You just – I didn't say no too many times, put it that way. I went wherever they asked me to go, I went. So – I went to L.A., I went to San Diego, I went to Sacramento, I went to Tacoma, I went to Dallas. Went they pay all your expenses, your they, they played all my foot, yeah. I, I went down up and down Tobacco Road, but when I did the games, they were like, oh, gee, we'll pay you $80, $90, $100. That was back in the 80s, you know. And they, they covered your transportation. They flew you out, flew you back, put you up in a hotel. Fortunately, I didn't have to pay for it because I couldn't afford it, you know, so... You're a hot commodity. At the time, I was. Now I'm just an old man trying to do the best I can do. <laughs> well, you got you were recognized not just um, as a referee, but also as a player in the Hall of Fame here in Maryland. Yes, I was. So whoever that selection committee was must have thought I did a good job when I played. And um, they put me in as a player. And then a few years later, I got put in as a... Uh, a referee in the Maryland State Soccer Hall of Fame, so I'm a dual representative for Maryland. And from there, I went into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. So that was a pretty nice honor. And uh, as far as I know, there's only four of us in the National Soccer Hall of Fame. Wow. And I'll name them for you. Ray Kraft, Nick Kropfelter, uh, Paul Tamburino, and myself as players, referees. I think Nick went in as a... He was a great referee, but I think he went in as a player, actually. But wow. Ray, Paul, and myself went in as referees. So that was a great honor. 2004, I think it was, I went in. National Soccer Hall of Fame. Wow. Uh, that is quite an honor. Yeah, it was. So to have a little local boy do do well was, was something. Now, that's another thing. I went out to San Diego and did the MISL final. And, and it was coincidental, I guess I should say. So... Johnny Barazzi is a name from Dundalk. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard of Johnny oh, Barazzi. We've, we've heard his name come up in yeah. almost every podcast <laughs> yeah. now. Johnny Barazzi was a great player, went to Penn State, and he played with us as you know as we grew older. And actually, we were on the same team, Johnny and I. And as years went past, I went out to San Diego and did the MISL finals between San Diego and Dallas. So I'm doing a game with Essie Bahamas, another great referee. He's in with CONCACAF now. Him and I were doing a game. And uh, San Diego wins. I don't know. I can't remember the score, but they beat Dallas. And who presents the trophy? The winning trophy was Johnny Barazzi, was the commissioner of the MSL at the time. I think Earl Foreman got sick, and Johnny Barazzi went out and presented the trophy to him. And I said, holy crap, two local boys, one from Hollandtown, one from Dundalk, giving out the MISL trophy in San Diego. What an experience that was. It was kind of neat to do that. That's really And cool. to have Johnny there. And, you know, he knew me. I knew him, so... It was a pretty good reunion. It was wild. From what from what I understand now, listening to a lot of the people who've been on the podcast is is we've had a, a lot of local players come out of Baltimore, but then go on to various different professional teams and support the game, help the, the development of the game 
not just here in Baltimore, but kind of all over the place. That's that's correct. I mean, you had to, you know, I can go back when we, when we were young. Denny Witt did very well. Went on to play. Denny Wilbert played for the Washington Diplomats. Uh, Sonny Askew, I'm sure you mentioned him a couple times, maybe on your podcast. He went. He, he was did on well. Podcast. He was on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sonny was a good player, and he played professionally and he did well. And I think he's into coaching. You know, and you know we had some of those really good players became coaches and. And coaches, Charlie Myers, I think, is still coaching a bunch of kids and does very well at it. Charlie Myers was on the podcast last week. Oh, smoke. I didn't know that. But Charlie was a good player. You didn't want to get in his way. I mean, I went up against Charlie Myers many a time, and he was a good player. Hard, yeah, as, hard as a rock, man. Why but he... did you tell us about that? <laughs> because no, he was a forward, and he was notorious for his ability in the air, which is basically a... A goalkeeper's worst nightmare. Oh, yeah, he yeah he was. But fortunately, he was on my team, so <laughs> it, it was good for him to go. He was he was a terror in, in the air, and he's a, I hear he's a very good coach. I, I've seen him a couple times, and he's coaching kids, and, and that's what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about these younger younger kids are learning the game from people from Hollandtown. You know, Charlie, was, I think, was from Overly, Baltimore County, not too far away, but he was from Overly. And he learned his skills, went on to be, uh, well, I think he went on to play professionally. Yeah, I think he did. Dallas. Dallas, yeah. And he, and he played on a 95 or 75 championship team at U of B with Petey Karenji. Mm-hmm. There's two kids that did well. They won national championships back in the old BU days. Unfortunately, they don't have a program anymore. But back then, it was pretty good rivalry between them and Loyola. That was a, a heated neighborhood battle. So as a referee, did you ever have, I mean, I can just say as a player, I've had experiences where, say, we keep getting this one referee, and I just feel like that referee is my nemesis. (laughs) So as a referee, did you ever have, like, a player or a coach or a particular team that that if you got assigned to them, you were just like, oh, here we go? (laughs) Uh, that, you know, put it this way, I never turned down any games. You know, if I was assigned, I went. And if, if I had a reason where I think, well, this team really don't like me, you know, for whatever reason, I wouldn't put, or put the game in jeopardy and do that. I would say no. Um, but I, I, I can't recall any where I had a bad experience with any, any particular team or any particular player. As you got... Um, older and you said that a lot of the, the kids started playing and you started seeing your friends' kids in the field refing them. Did you ever get into a situation where you're refing a game and you feel biased, but you're really trying not to be, but you've got some close people on, on one team or the other? Yeah, well, that, that, that does happen. I mean, you know, being from Baltimore and de- doing the blast in the playoffs, you know, you know, a lot of people don't think about that, but here I am from Baltimore, and I'm refereeing Baltimore Blast in the playoffs in 2003 against Milwaukee. So I go to Milwaukee and referee the Blast in Milwaukee, and then they come home and they play again. And and at that particular year, Baltimore cleaned their clock. So you know, you you don't want to be biased, and you don't want to be one-sided, you don't want to be a homer. But some people may perceive that, and you, you know, you obviously you try not to, and. Uh, some people may perceive that, look, this guy's Homer in this team or that team, and you, you, you try not to. But uh, I guess that was a pretty good accomplishment for me. I didn't put it that way. But, uh, 
be able to do the blast on the road against St. Louis or be able to do the blast on the road against Chicago or Cleveland. The coaches obviously knew who I was, and they knew I was from Baltimore, so they didn't mind. People, it sounds like people generally felt that you were fair. I would, um, I would think so. I mean, the Baltimore people, you know, they, they would think, well, gee, maybe he's over-refereeing because he's from Baltimore, you know, or maybe. I don't think that ever happened, but it, it may have in some people's mind or opinion. They might have thought I was over-refereeing or trying to favor Baltimore, but you try, you try to treat the game fairly. You want the players to play in a fair atmosphere. You don't want them to get hurt. You don't want to see the skilled players get beat by a thug or something like that. So you try to do the best job you can, go down the middle and do the best job and don't, you know, try not to be one-sided. I mean, you can't be, but there's sometimes there's a call against Baltimore, you got to make it. I remember the opening game in Milwaukee, I had to put Danny Kelly, who's now the coach of the Blast, I had to put him in the penalty box in the first 10 minutes because he grabbed the guy's shirt on a breakaway. Is this the first Blast game? Put him in the but yeah. Well, yeah, in 2003 it was. Okay. And we, well, no, the first blast game was in 1978. I mean, are you talking about the first game or? No, no, tell. Uh, yeah, no. that was gonna be my next question. Oh, okay. You can go, you can go on that story. But oh then. well. Well, no, this particular it was 2003, and I'm in Milwaukee, and the first blue card I give to Danny Kelly, and he's now coaching the blast. So I give it to him. I'm pretty sure it was him, and I put him in a box. But it was the right call, even though it's against the blast, and I'm in Milwaukee. I'm from Baltimore. Did he give you trouble? No, no, he didn't. He didn't. He knew it, and I knew it. And it was it was one of them calls. You know, you just you make the call, and you make what you make the call in front of you. It's like it's not Baltimore and Milwaukee. It's two teams playing one another. So it, it's not like I'm from Baltimore. I got to make this call or put him in a box to hurt him. It was just the right call to be made at that time, and I did. And from there on, the players just went out and kicked their butt, unfortunately, in, in Milwaukee. Fortunately. Unfortunately, I guess, or unfortunately. But I was, you know, Richie, Richie Grady was the other guy, and he was from Chicago. So, you know, we, we had a, I thought we had a good game. Anyhow, Blast was on, and, and they, they won a championship that year. Yeah. So how about um, how about the very, very first Blast game? Talk about pressure. You don't oh, be, Jesus, yes. You don't want to be biased. You're from oh. Baltimore, and you're refing the very first Baltimore Blast game ever. Yeah. It was it was it was a one heck of an experience I can tell you that it 1978 was the first blast game played at the arena they were playing Philadelphia I'm refereeing it and I'm in the fourth quarter refereeing this game and back then it was one man on the floor so you can imagine one guy running up and down the floor for 15 minutes it was exhausted I was totally totally exhausted and bingo I put my very first blue card of my career was against Blast. The guy jumped over a player and jumped right, hit and right into the goalkeeper. And, you know, i got to protect the goalkeeper. And bingo, the first blue card was against a Blast player, put him in a box. And I can't even remember if Philadelphia or Baltimore won the game. It didn't matter, but what an experience that was, running around on the field. 1978, the only referee on the field with, with 22 guys wanting to kill one another. Well, and you had to control them. It was for protecting a goalkeeper. Yes. Which is a cause close to your heart. Cart close to my heart. <laughs> don't run into the goalkeeper like that, young man. Uh, don't run into. Yeah, that was my first blue card. And from there, I just kept on refereeing. I was a goal judge. I was a penalty box attendant. I was assistant referee, and I worked my way onto the floor. And for the next 22, 23 years, I kept refereeing. So what, what an experience. You said you liked the pace of the indoor game. Yes. Um, but you, you also refereed Santos and El Salvador and RFK Stadium, college national championships. I mean, you ate 
to start to U- begin. U H to um, start. The the um, the men's league in Baltimore. So I mean, of, of everything that you've done, what would you say was your favorite? What, and, what did you enjoy the most? Well, I I enjoy refereeing five national championships. I enjoy refereeing actually another five ten. I did the division three final, three national junior college finals. They were all great games. Um, Essex women won national championship final. I did that game. I thought the indoor game was so much fun. It just with the crowd, you know, 20,000 people at the arena or Richfield Coliseum had twenty thousand. St. Louis Checkered Dome had twenty thousand people watching the game. And the indoor game was so fast and so much fun. You know, you you don't get a chance to referee a Steve Zungle in your lifetime. You don't get a chance to referee some of the greatest players like Tattoo. They were great, great soccer players with great skill. And the arenas were packed in the 80s and 90s. And they, it was just an outstanding effort. And I like today, I, even though I'm 70, I would have been loving to do indoor games if it wasn't for the flying all around the daggone country doing games. But you're still refereeing. Yeah, but it's different now. <laughs> I referee for exercise and to keep my body in shape and to meet people like Allie, Andrew Jeske. It's fun. It's fun doing these old-time people at the Lutherville Timonium Rec Center. Does it pose a new challenge for you? Yeah, to keep my body in shape and keep refereeing. <laughs> yes, it does. You know, I was going to quit when I was 50, then I was going to quit when I was 60, and now here I am at 70, and I'm going to quit, but I don't know when. I don't know when. It's just, it's just so much fun. I keep on going. It's like the energizing bunny you wind him up and he keeps going I guess give me a game I'll go out and referee for you do the best I can do I guess I'm still in demand for some people but yeah. some people probably don't want to see me anymore but that's okay nah. that's okay so what would what would you say is uh something that that you've learned over the course of your playing and your refereeing um over the course of your life what's what's one of the what's one of the big things that you've carried with you Along the way. Well, I carried what I like to carry about refereeing soccer and playing is just the camaraderie of the people you meet. I mean, some of these people you meet are just outstanding individuals, and some of the people you referee with are just outstanding referees. It's just meeting the the people that play soccer. I mean, Jesus, we used to knock heads with South Baltimore guys, and they were just as friendly as you could be. But we would knock heads with them. We'd go in and we play soccer to. The 90 minutes were over, and we stopped. We shook hands after the game and moved on. Sometimes it didn't turn into a shake hand. Sometimes it turned into a fight. <laughs> but uh, some of the people you meet in soccer, and, and you'll find out, it's just so many great people in soccer. And, the, and a lot of them have roots in Baltimore. A lot of them play the game in Baltimore and branched out to different states, different towns, into the county. And, you know, it's just a lot of roots from Baltimore. I don't know what else to tell you. It's, it's been an outstanding ride. So do you have any advice for, I mean, you've obviously, you've, you've refereed even youth soccer, you know, and, and we've been talking about kind of the, the next generation coming up and the next generation of coaches and, and all of that. So do you have any advice for, for people who are bringing their kids into the game, maybe people who don't have as much experience or people who did play and, and are getting involved from, from what you've seen? the game yeah you got I I would say again your best referees are people that have played the game because they know what it is to take a hit take a foul 
we need referees badly. I mean, a lot of people say, ah, oh, these referees are bad, you know, but get out there and try to do it one day. Like you said, you did one game and you never want to do it again. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, you grow from that one and, and you move on and you referee your next one and then you referee your next one and it then you get better, better as you go along. Yes. <laughs> your experience of a parent yelling at you has to stop. It, you know, parents just yell for yelling. Their little Johnny's getting beat on the ground and you're not calling a foul. I mean, my little Johnny can't run. I mean, he, he stumbles and falls down. But uh, just get out there. If you want to be a referee, we need referees badly. I mean, I hate to keep saying it, but we, we always need referees. I see so many emails, well, geez, we need some referees to referee game. Get out there and give it a shot. And you guys that are playing or girls that are playing, I think I got three girls in my staff of college referees, and we would love to have more young ladies out there like yourself who played the game but don't want to take the chance to get yelled at. <laughs> don't be yelled at. Get out there and help us referee. You could do the kids and you can have a blast, and I think, you know, you'll really enjoy it. When you get done playing, of course, you're a young lady yet, but if you get done playing, you want to come referee, come see me. Okay. I come see that. me or Frey. We'll take care of you. <laughs> okay, I got, I got two more questions for you. One, All right. Um, one is who, who over the, the course of your career life, and it can be at any stage, um, who's had the biggest impact on you? <clears throat> biggest impact on me, I guess, as a player, was a gentleman by the name of Dan Terzi from Patterson, who was my high school coach. And Joe Tamins, they were both my high school coaches. They were very influential in my young years of growing up into the soccer world, in the soccer community. They they taught me how to play the game. And then Nick Ropfelter and Greeny Kraft were two outstanding referees who showed me how to referee the game and do it the right way. So there's a couple people that were really influential. And uh, I would say Nick Ropfelter about the best one. God rest his soul. Great referee and a great Obviously, he was a great player. I never saw him play, but he's in the National Hall of Fame as a player, I'm pretty sure. And uh, he was very instrumental in my refereeing career. And and the guys I used to referee with were very helpful. You know, you don't do it alone. You can't go out there and referee a game without two ARs with you to know what they're doing. So uh, they were the, they were most influential people. And Joe Tamins got me, actually, Joe Tamins got me involved in soccer. He said, you ought to think about refereeing when you get done playing. I went, Hmm, that ain't a bad idea. You know, I was a young man growing up, raising a family, needed some money, and didn't make much back then, but uh, we made a little bit of money. And, uh, and uh, I still enjoy refereeing again. So they were my influential people you were talking about. That were the, Joe Tamins, I guess, was the biggest one. He got me into soccer a little bit and got me into refereeing a little bit. Did he take you under his wing? Did he follow? He gave you a little special attention? Well, he, 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 was, he wound up being our class sponsor, you know, in high school, and he, and he said, go, go referee, have fun, you can do this. And I did. So Joe Tamins, I guess, was an influential man in my thing. And his team's going to be honored at the Hall of Fame banquet this year in May, and I, I hope to see him there. And he's up there in age, too. He's got to be about 80, 85, somewhere in there. But he was, he was instrumental in my refereeing career, that's for sure. And all the guys I refereed with him, and I can name Essie Bahamas and Gino DiPolito and uh, Herb Silva. They all, you know, it's, it's, it's a crazy way they mentor you, they help you, and they, they, they say, we want to make him better, and, and that's what we do. That's what we do with the young referees. You know, you got Rob Faraday in this area. He's got a great mentoring program going with these young referees in USSF. 
And Paul Tamburino had a great influence on a lot of people refereeing. So they were the people I worked with and enjoyed it. Did I answer all your questions? I got one more for you. Oh, Jesus. Last one. One more. Okay. Okay, last question is, how did you get the nickname Meatball? Oh, jeez. You had to go there. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right, I'm a young kid in Holland Town. And back then, we lived in a row home on Conklin Street. You know, it was a block long with maybe 25, 30 houses. And in that block, there was three Joes. And when we choose up to play stickball or, or red light or green light, whatever we play, we hopscotch, whatever we did, we choose teams. And some guy would say, I'll take Joe. And everybody go, all right, which Joe? There's Joe Manfrey, there's Joe Kazizzi, there's Joe Jones. What Joe are you talking about? So a guy named Nick Rossiano, I'll never forget this, lived next door, and he says, all right, enough of this stuff. Your spaghetti, your meatball, and your sauce. <laughs> and there I go. My nickname, Meatball, stayed with me since I was a little kid, about 10 years old, I guess. And you still have friends calling you Meatball? Well, when somebody calls me Meatball, I know it's an old friend. I'll look at him and say, oh, shoot, I know him from a long time ago. I know Tommy Wall was talking about you in his podcast, and he called you Meatball. Uh, that's that's an old friend. <laughs> Tommy Wall and I go way back. So if anybody calls me Meatball, you know, you look at somebody and say, oh, I think I know this guy. Or, I think I know this person. We can't think of his name right away, but... If he's calling me Meatball, he's got to be an old friend. So your mind thinks back to an older person and say, geez, where I know this guy from. So if anybody's calling me Meatball, I know it. they're old friends. So one spaghetti, one Meatball, and one sauce. It was crazy, but it, that's how I got my nickname. And that question got asked to me at Jerry Sandusky when I got inducted in the University of Baltimore Hall of Fame. He says, how'd you get the name Meatball? And I had to tell this whole story all over again to Jerry Sandusky. It's a good, it's a good story. It's a great story. It's a great story. But... Uh, I guess there was a other couple meatballs in the neighborhood too, but they were short and fat, so I don't think that was me. But there they were got a couple. Their nickname for a different reason. Different reason, yes. <laughs> they got it for a different reason. Different well, reason. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really fun listening to your story, and and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you, Allie, and uh, keep the Baltimore tradition alive. Keep those people out there hustling, even though it might have moved out to Baltimore County. But, you know, Baltimore County. We Baltimore still City. count. We still count. Absolutely, <laughs> you do. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Joe. Well, there you have it. Joe Meatball Manfrey. What an amazing career he has experienced. Joe has an incredible story and took a path in his career unlike anyone I have ever met. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and have a great week.